when uncle said that there's this hospital that exists of free care, I said, oh, how can you give cardiac surgery for free? Right? And he said, it's a super specialty hospital, does cardiology, urology. And that's why I was saying it doesn't register to me that a hospital like that could even exist. So it wasn't like I wasn't, an, uh, I didn't disbelieve, I just couldn't believe. That was Dr. Waluwan Jeevanandam, Professor and Chief, Section of Cardiothoracic Surgery, University of Chicago. Welcome to Radio Size Series, Trist with Divinity. And in this episode, we have for you Dr. Waluwan Jeevanandam. Just now, you heard Dr. Jeevanandam reminiscing the moments when he first heard about Bhagwan Baba's super speciality hospital at Puttaparthi. As he said, the idea that a high-tech hospital providing tertiary care to cardiac patients completely free of charge was for him an impossible idea. Dr. Jeevanandam is one of the world's distinguished heart surgeons. A native of southern India, Dr. Jeevanandam emigrated to the United States as a young child and grew up mostly in New Jersey. Before arriving at the University of Chicago, he was surgical director of the heart transplant program at Philadelphia's Temple University where he performed 70 to 80 transplants a year and quickly built the program into one of the nation's largest. Ask him about his days in the college and he says, quote, Medical school for me was a breeze, maths and science came naturally to me." Unquote. Dr. Eric A. Rose, chairman of the surgery department at the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York, is his mentor and he describes Dr. Jivanandam as one who is enormously gifted and brilliant. And the host of clinical awards and recognition that have come his way only stand testimony to this fact. He has been honored as America's top doctor in cardiac surgery and America's top surgeon. He also received the Maxwell Chamberlain Award in 2004 for best paper on acquired heart disease from the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Dr. Jivanandam also serves as a panel member on circulatory devices for the Food and Drug Administration in the USA. He has published widely and contributes as a reviewer for a series of peer-reviewed publications including the journal Circulation and Journal of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery for which he also works on the editorial board. A man with such sterling accomplishments was stupefied when he stepped for the first time into the Sri Satyasai Institute of Higher Medical Sciences, Prashanti Gram, in the early 90s. What struck me at that time was how quiet and peaceful a hospital was. There were many, many people and they're all quietly sitting down. I've never seen a hospital so quiet. And you had, you know, very, very soft budgets being played. It was a place of peace. Even at that time, I didn't comprehend that this was actual hospital that you could work in. I, I thought this was more coming to a temple that you would meditate in. 
it was just so peaceful and you could see the peace in the patient's faces. Dr. Jeevanandam went on to narrate how Baba's super speciality hospital, both in Puttaparthi and Whitefield, are unique at two levels, physical and spiritual, and then elaborated on how these temples of healing have so many lessons for humanity, especially in the current context when we see large-scale commercialization and dehumanization of medicine. This apart, what is also very interesting is how Dr. Jivanandam came into the Sai fold. Let's hear him as he shares this episode and more in this freewheeling conversation with Radio Sai's Bishu Prosti. My first real change to the Swami fold, when Swami actually invited me into his realm, was uh, about 1991, 1991-1992. Uh, so that's when I was actually became more of a Swami devotee. I heard about this hospital in, I think it was either 92 or 93. And so uh, we have going to a satsang center in uh, Philadelphia. And uh, auntie called me up and she said, you know, her uncle was coming and uh, she wanted me to come and meet with him. And I didn't even know why she was calling me. And I had not heard about this hospital at all at that time. So we went, we had wonderful budgets, And then afterwards he came to me and he said, you know, I hear you're a cardiac surgeon. I said, yes. He says, you know, uh, Swami's built a hospital in uh, Puttaparthi. And uh, at that time, you know, I had never met Swami before. I had not known anything about Puttaparthi. But you were religious? You liked the bhajans and all that? Yes. So my whole foray into Swami, you know, my mother first heard about Swami. So she was in Phoenix, Arizona. And we were living in Philadelphia at that time. So it's about 3,000 miles difference. So every single time I would come home, she would want me to go to bhajans. And she would want me to go to study circle. She would buy me books. And she would give me the books. And you know how it is, you know, we're rebellious young ones. Yeah. And so uh, I would tell my mother, yes, yes, I'll read it, but I didn't read any of the books, etc. And uh, so she would give me some tapes, and one day I started playing some tapes, and I found that I would have about a 30-minute car drive to work. Mm. And instead of listening to the news and listening to business news and all the problems with the world, if I put budgets, when I got out of the car, I felt so much more refreshed, and I felt like I could handle any of the pressures of the day. And so, you know, Swami has hooks on different people, mm. and my hook was bhajans. bhajans. So I started to enjoy bhajans. And before that time, you know, if uh, my mom would always say, okay, stay for three o'clock Sunday bhajans and then take your flight afterwards. So I would always make sure that I was flying before three o'clock so I didn't have to go <laughs> to bhajans. So then afterwards, I enjoyed bhajans, so then I would take the four o'clock flight or the five mm. o'clock flight so I would go to bhajans. Mm. And then uh, one day when I was coming to Phoenix, I uh, was all ready to read one of my, you know, uh, thriller novels. And mm. in, the, in my uh, knapsack, the only book that I had there was The Vision of Sai by Rita Bruce. Mm. And uh, so I didn't have any other book, you know. 
and I know I didn't put that book there. Oh, you didn't put the book I didn't there. put the book there. I was putting a John Grisham novel. Oh. But then when I opened my knapsack, <laughs> it, I only, it only appeared uh, with the vision of Sai. Mm. So I started reading that book. And you know how um, you know, uh, Swami says when it's time, your mind changes and he will grab you. And I think that plane ride was my time because mm. I was uh, engrossed by the book. And when I got out of the plane, I decided at that time I was going to be a vegetarian. So, till that time, I was a complete non-vegetarian. So, oh, By the end of the flight, you had decided to be a vegetarian? Yes, and I have not touched meat is since. Is there anything uh, in particular in that book that really struck you? I think there was a combination of uh, a little bit of science mm. on the fact that, you know, to get one pound of beef, mm. you need to, I don't know the exact numbers, but yeah. It's like an astronomical amount of water. Yes. It's an astronomical amount of wheat. And it's an astronomical amount of resources that you right. need to get to get that one pound of beef. Yes. And instead of eating that beef, if you just eat the wheat or right. the corn, it was so much better for the environment, for the world. And so it started with science. Mm. And then when Swami started talking about uh, sattvic food and the fact that if you eat meat, then you become somewhat of a... Yeah, attain the qualities of the animal. Mm. So I think a combination of Swami's teachings and science, mm. and I decided, okay, if I'm going to be a Sai devotee, then I should let go of meat. So I got out of the plane, being a Sai devotee, and saying my first step is going to be giving up meat. Oh. So you know how when the son comes home, my mother pre you know, created this huge feast. Mm. I met her in the airport and I said, okay, I'm going to be a vegetarian from now on. <laughs> so of course, she was shocked. But that was my start. Mm. So, at, from that point on, we ended up going more to satsangs and got involved with bhajans. So, when auntie called me, I went to their house and I met with her uncle. And his uncle said, you know, Swami's built this hospital. And it never even registered to me that a hospital could be free because, mm. you know, the hospital, so the of course… The bhajans were in somebody's house. Yes, that was in Philadelphia. At the, by that time, we had uh, going to uh, the Sai Center in Doylestown. Okay. And um, so we went to her, her house and we used to go to her house every Sunday. And this was a special budget that she had because her uncle had just come. Mm -hmm. And so he was telling, talking to me about the hospital. And you know, honestly, it just didn't register to me that there could be a hospital that could be giving free service mm -hmm. and a hospital of this magnitude mm -hmm. because it's not something that I would have ever expected. But, you know, the one thing that he did say was that they had a lot of patients with valve problems mm -hmm. and getting valves in India at that time, which was 20 years ago, was quite difficult. Mm -hmm. So he asked me if I could give him any help in procuring valves from the U.S. and bringing them to India. Mm -hmm. And we all know that if, you know, Swami wants to procure valves, you know, Swami can just do anything with his hands and his mind and, you know, at the infinite amount of valves can come to Puttaparthi. But of course, he uses each one of us as an instrument and everyone has their own story. I think one of the stories that he brought me to this hospital was through valves. Mm. So uncle asked me for valves and you know, valves are quite expensive in the US and I had no idea how I would ever ask anybody for valves. Mm. So I put it in the back of my mind and didn't even pay attention to it. This was like around February or March. In June, uh, we had decided we were going to come to India. And uh, usually at that time when I came to India, I would come to our relative's house and my wife's uh, relatives as well as our relatives. So at that time I never met with Swami and I said, okay, uh, you know, maybe we'll go and uh, see Swami because at that time we had gotten very involved with Sai activities. 
So uh, we were supposed to come in June. So by about May time, you know, I had thought about the vows and didn't even know who to ask for vows. At that time, I was quite a junior person in our department. So a junior person coming to ask, uh, you know, representatives for vows, you don't get any response at all. But you wouldn't uh, imagine. So first, you know, one day I was sitting in my office and this person came into my room and he was a vow representative. And he said, hey, your secretary is saying that you're going to go to India. I said, yes, I'm going to go to India. I'm going to visit some relatives. And that person said, you know, um, are you going to do any charity work in India? And I said, no, I wasn't planning on doing any charity work. But he said, well, you know, if you are interested, our models of valves changed. Mm -hmm. And because they changed, I have many, many valves of the old model that no one wants to use in the U.S. So if you would like, I can give you these valves. And they're very, very good valves. People are still using them all over right now. But in the U.S., if they sell it to one hospital, that hospital cannot give it to anybody else. They have to discard those valves. It's an FDA regulation. So they said, I have many hospitals who want to upgrade to the next valve. So they're giving me these old valves, and I don't, cannot do anything with them. And they're perfectly fine. Most of the other hospitals use those valves. But these particular hospitals don't want those valves. So here's a man who's coming to me and offering me valves at a time when I didn't even know how to ask him. And so at that time I said, I remembered what uncle had said and he said, okay, you know, this hospital needs valves. So I said, yeah, yeah, give me these valves. I, I know a place that will accept those valves. So he gave me those valves. And about two or three days it later... like more valves came to you. You didn't really go looking out for them. No, because I, I didn't even know how to look for them. So they came and, to me. And, and did you actually believe also when he, when he said that, you know, such a hospital exists free, offering free, completely free care? When uncle said that there's this hospital that exists of free care, I said, oh, how can you give cardiac surgery for free? Right? And he said, it's a super specialty hospital, does cardiology, urology. And that's why I was saying it doesn't register to me that a hospital like that could even exist. So it wasn't like I wasn't, a, uh, I didn't disbelieve. I just couldn't believe. Yeah. And so the first company gave me valves, and then you won't believe it, but three days later, another company came, oh. and they also said they had valves. Because I guess these guys start talking, oh, okay. and then so he gave me a bunch of valves, and then we got some sutures, etc. And pretty soon, even without me asking anybody, I had a huge suitcase full of incredible resources of valves and sutures and you know, quite expensive equipment. And so at that time, you know, we were trying to figure out how to come here. And someone said, okay, you have to take a taxi from Bangalore to Puttaparthi. And the hospital's on the way. So I'd never been to this hospital, never been to Puttaparthi. And uh, so we landed up in uh, Bangalore. And I figured I'd give myself, you know, one day to Puttaparthi and come back. And then so we had given ourselves two days in Bangalore. That was it. So I came in the evening time. And I asked the person at the hotel, you know, I need to go to Puttaparthi to see Sai Baba. And he said, oh, but Sai Baba is in Whitefield. Oh. So we went to Whitefield, we got darshan, and, you know, I saw Swami as a small orange speck from way in the back. We didn't know what time to go. We didn't know what line to stay. We just saw Swami from all the way in the back. And so the next day we had arranged a taxi uh, to go to uh, Puttaparthi. And uh, in that time, of course, the roads were bad. It took about four hours to come so here. So to Puttaparthi to deposit all the Just to deposit the uh, equipment. Uh, once you get off the main road, it's all desert at that time. Okay, there's nothing major here. They're very, very small villages. The roads were bad. I don't even know if they were paved at that time. 
So it's all desert, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, where am I going? This looks like the middle of nowhere. And there's a very, very gentle hill. You know, you go up, and then you come down. And as soon as you go up and come down that hill, it's like the whole world has opened up into an oasis because there was this beautiful, beautiful palace, you know, this hospital. And I, I, I was astonished. I said, well, you know, what is that? He goes, oh, that's the hospital. <laughs> you know, I was expecting, I had never seen a picture of the hospital before. So I was expecting a very rectangular gray building. And here you have this beautiful pink paradise. So as always happens, you know, Swami always has these little leelas and little plays. And, you know, he likes to do these plays so we gain more faith and surrender in Swami. So we came to the gate. And at the gate, the Sevadal said, okay, you don't have a pass. Who are you? And I said, you know, I've come from the U.S. I have a lot of this equipment. He must have thought I was a drug representative or a bowel representative because he wasn't letting me in. So, uh, and I said, you know, ask inside. Because I didn't let them know I was even coming. Because I, no one told me to do that. I just thought I could come to the hospital and give these things and leave. And so uh, after, you know, he called and then all of a sudden he said, okay, you can go to the main gate. So uh, this is the first time and probably the last time in the hospital I actually went to the main gate because now whenever I come to the hospital, you always go to the side gates. But so I went to this main gate and this beautiful, beautiful hall and I get out of the car and one of the doctors at that time, he comes out, he puts his arms out and he says, ah, yes, you have arrived. And I looked at him and I said, you have arrived. I didn't tell anybody I was going to come. You know, I didn't know anybody in the hospital. It's not like I asked Swami's permission to come. But he said, you have arrived. And he said, this is, you have come, you have come home. I said, come home. This is, I don't know anything about this being home. And, uh, you know, he, it's very interesting. He said, Swami had told them that within the next couple of days, somebody's going to come from America and is going to bring all your supplies. Oh. But... I didn't tell anybody. Anyway, so, you know, the second I saw him, I felt at home. You know, when he said, you're at home, I felt, oh, maybe, you know, this is more than a hospital. This is not a hospital. This is more like a temple, a place to worship. Of course, when you come into the great hall, you see all these beautiful Ganesha statues and the chandelier and this real hall of meditation. So I felt something special. And so they took me through the hospital. They treated me like a son, more than a doctor. And I gave him all the equipment. And he asked me what I did. And I told him I'm a transplant surgeon. He said, ah, you know, our doctors would love to hear about transplant. And I said, but, you know, I didn't bring any slides. And then he opened up the bag and he said, well, what are these slides? And so somehow my slides had come into that suitcase. I had, I had put him in a different suitcase because I was going to give a talk someplace else. And so the slides were in this suitcase and oh. I gave a quick talk about transplant. One after another. Yes. <laughs> surprises <laughs> and I think, you know, it's amazing how Swami makes all these, they're not incidences, incidences they're not coincidences, you know. Uh, Rita Bruce calls them psi incidences. Right. So I gave them the talk on transplant and after I gave them the talk on transplant, I kind of became known as the expert in transplant. So I talked to the doctors at that time. I had no, it was still overwhelming. And, uh, you know, they took me through a round and I still didn't quite comprehend that this was a hospital that people didn't pay anything to. I did saw, see a lot of Swami's pictures. I could feel the vibrations of his love. And what struck me at that time was how quiet and peaceful a hospital was. There were many, many people and they're all quietly sitting down. I've never seen a hospital so quiet, mm. 
and you had, you know, very, very soft bhajans being played. It was a place of peace. I think the first time as you're narrating, what comes out is when you enter the hospital for the first time, it touched your heart more than, you know, your yes. mind or... Even at that time, I didn't comprehend that this was actually a hospital that you could work in. I, I thought this was more coming to a temple that you would meditate <laughs> in. It was just so peaceful. And you could see the peace in the patient's faces. You could see that. They weren't agitated. They were calm and peaceful. It's very hard. It's very rare to see that in a hospital because usually when you go to a hospital, people have worry, they have anxiety. You really found that difference here? Oh, very easily. You could find that difference now. If you just go to the outpatient facility in a hospital in the U.S. and you go to your OPD here, you know, it's remarkable that you have how quiet and how serene it is and how calm the patients are. Because I think the patients come, they come for Swami. And they know that Swami will take care of them. And that belief and faith guides them. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's just a remarkable... There's medicine that goes on, but there's also spirituality. There's uh, mind healing. There's a lot of other things that go on that are beyond just what physicians can do. You know, there's the saying that the physician can treat, but God only heals. And I think you see both of that in this uh, hospital. So at that time I went back to Bangalore and then I went home and uh, back to uh, Philadelphia, never really thinking about ever working in this hospital or, you know, I, I, I thought it was a fascinating place. I thought you had to be really chosen to be working here, so I didn't even think about that. And then all of a sudden I got a letter in the mail from Dr. Safaya who said that they were going to have a second cardiovascular symposium. It was going to be in uh, February and uh, whether I'd be interested in attending. And he said, we would like you to give a talk on heart transplantation. So because of those slides and the fact that I was giving the talk, they had considered me a, uh, an expert in heart transplant. They wanted me to talk in that second symposium. And you, know, you are an expert. Uh, you know, Swami's the expert. I'm just his instrument. So my first response was, okay, how am I going to get time off in February? Because you know, I was uh, doing a lot of transplants there and you, know, you would have to take some time off to come. And so I didn't know how I would ever find that time in February. But you know, if Swami wills it, you always get some time. And so I was able to take one week off in February to come. And uh, you know how they say, you know, um, the only way you come to Puttaparthi is Swami wills you to come. You know, because you could do everything possible and if Swami thinks it's not your time, you're not going to come. And that time, you know, uh, there was this huge ice storm that was in Philadelphia and everything was covered in ice. And it was about an inch of ice. I mean, you could start the car from the garage and then the car won't stop because you cannot stop on ice. And that's the climate that uh, we were supposed to take off on and at that time we didn't have the internet and everything so we called the airlines and the airline said well most likely your flight is going to be cancelled because it's uh, too big an ice storm but they said if you want you can come uh, to the airport so we, you know it took us three hours to get to the airport on a ride that usually takes about half an hour because half the cars were off the road ditched and everything so I went to the airport and I think the only flight that took off that entire evening uh, was the flight that I was on that came to India. So again, if Swami wants you to come, he'll 
he'll make you come. So I came here and I attended that conference. And it was such a wonderful conference. That's the first time I'd been in uh, Puttaparthi. And uh, it was a very different experience, you know, because I was there in the midst of, you know, great, great surgeons. Many of the people who had written the books, you know, when you open up the textbooks, you have Donald Ross, you have all these people, Carlos Duran, and these were incredible people who were there in the conference. And I'm looking around in awe because these are the people that you learn from. And they've all come because Swami's asked them to come. I mean, it's just an amazing thing because, you know, I could ask them in University of Chicago to come and give a talk and, you know, they would either charge a lot of money or they would not find time. But they all found time to come to uh, Swami's conference. It was just an amazing experience. And so that was the second conference at that time. And, uh, so you, you know, that was the first time that I'd actually met Swami. Mm. And that's when it all changed because at the end of that conference, I had stayed one day later uh, just because, you know, my connections at that time, we didn't have connections every day. So uh, my connection was only the next day. And so I stayed one day later. And, uh, you know, it just so happened that maybe Swami wanted that to happen because most of the, every, all the other doctors were gone. So he called me for an interview. Oh. And at that time, you know, it's, I never realized how precious interviews were. And because he just called me, I said, okay, great, I'll go so talk to him. Uh, a group of doctors or only you? Uh, see, the group, the, almost 99% of the group had left. Oh, okay. So the next day, you know, I was the only doctor there. Oh. And then they, you know, called other people as well. So I was the only doctor. He brought me in and, you know, Swami always makes fun of me. You know, those were the wonderful days when he would call me his coconut tree surgeon. He said, I don't know what I've done to you, but why did you grow so tall? So, <laughs> he, you know, he would call me his coconut tree surgeon and he would always make fun of me. You know, he would say, uh, you know, see, he transplants hearts. He can take one heart from another, but, you know, he can only transplant because only Swami can transform. And uh, I never understood that till I Swami understood later. That? Swami said that? Yeah, Swami said oh, that. That's amazing. And uh, I think it's only later that I understood that even for myself, He has transformed my heart. Right. And He can, He's the true transformer, mm -hmm. you know. There's the physical transplant, but, right. you know, from a spiritual transformation point of view, it's only Swami. Mm -hmm. And so He um, called me in at that time. I had asked him, uh, I didn't actually ask him even for permission to operate here because I didn't know that I would be allowed to. And Swami looked at me and he said, you know, uh, we have a new hospital. I said, yes, Swami, it's a beautiful hospital and I've seen it because they had a tour during the symposium. And he asked, he said, would you like to work here? I said, yes, Swami, but am I allowed to work here? And Swami opened his hands and he said, this is your hospital. You know, you can come and work anytime you want. And so uh, that's the first time he had, you know, uh, invited me to come and work in his hospitals. It's a wonderful thing, a wonderful experience at that time. Yeah. So since then, of course, you have come many times to this hospital. Yes. And served uh, for, uh, I think, various weeks, two, three weeks. Every year you come now. You know, um, unfortunately, I've been busy enough in the U.S. I come for about 10 days. 10 days. And uh, try to get a maximum amount of a block of time to operate. So uh, usually been operating about six days before I leave. What I was trying to say is you have come many times and yes. uh, what is it uh, that even now strikes you about this hospital? You have come so many times and is it something that uh, you, uh, that has a very deep impression on you about this hospital and which probably you also share with others? 
So I think this hospital does two things, okay? There's the two realms. There is the physical realm, and how different this hospital is, is from a physical form. And then there is the, uh, above the physical, there's the spiritual realm about how different this hospital is. So from a physical form, you know, it's amazing that, you know, again, many people have said this, there's no building department here. Okay, I mean, which hospital in the world you have that there's no building department? You know, there are still many charitable hospitals and the way they work is they'll say, okay, pay us what you can. Or they'll have different levels of payment for people who can afford it and people who cannot afford it and people who have insurance, etc. But there will be money because money is needed to run a hospital. So it is amazing that this hospital has no building department. And, you know, not having a building department, uh, I think, puts a lot of uh, patients at ease because they don't have to worry about their bills. And it also puts the physicians in a different frame of mind because, you know, you're not pressured to have to operate to generate your income. And then um, there's a huge amount of collaboration that occurs. Like in the U.S., you know, you have cardiologists and you have surgeons. And sometimes if a cardiologist puts a stent in, the cardiac surgeon loses out on that patient as, as uh, a revenue stream. And in the U.S., we often look at patients as revenue streams, not as patients, but as, okay, if the, if the cardiologist does this, then I can't do this. And the cardiologist says, well, if I send him for the cardiac surgery, then I cannot put a stent in. Well, I think one of the amazing things here, especially... of medicine. Correct. That's commercialization. And here's, it's almost like spiritualization of medicine because instead of money being driven, you know, it's not money-based medicine, it's truly a collaborative-based medicine. So here our cardiologists and cardiac surgeons, they're not looking at it as what is best for them. They're looking at it as what is best for the patient. So, you know, if they say, hey, listen, I have to put three stents in, and if I have to put three stents, then if one of the stents goes, then we have to put four stents, and it's not the best thing for the patient. And there's actually a lot of, even in the U.S., in the Western world, there's a lot of data to suggest that if you have to put a lot of stents for diffuse disease, that surgery is better. And, uh, you know, perhaps surgery even gives a survival benefit, and there's less complications called MACE, MACE's major adverse cardiac, cardiovascular events. And that's, you know, it's clear that after bypass surgery, there's less. But still, the cardiologists always see the patient first, and they'll convince the patient, okay, we're going to put stents. But here, one of the few places in the world where, you know, the, everybody works together. So the cardiologist says, well, you know, this is too diffuse disease. Why don't you just operate? In the same token, you know, the surgeons may look at a patient and say, listen, you know, this is a higher risk patient. You know, it's only one stent. Why don't you just put the stent in so we don't, we, you know, we can defer surgery. And also, the other thing that is not often thought about is just medical therapy. You know, uh, sometimes people look at an angiogram, they'll see a blockage, and they'll say immediately, oh, we have to fix the blockage, either with surgery or with, uh, with stenting. But there's a lot of data to suggest that just pure, simple medical therapy right. works well. And when it's revenue-driven, you know, you want to operate on the patient because you want to generate the revenue, it is appropriate treatment that is patient-based. That is not revenue-based. That's what happens when you take money out of the picture. And you get amazing amount of collaboration. And with collaboration, you just get fantastic patient care. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what Swami's always said. You know, he says, don't treat 
the x-ray. Don't treat the pneumonia, treat the patient. You know, what is truly wrong with that patient? I mean, he may have pneumonia, and you could treat the pneumonia, but maybe his real problem is that he has a blockage someplace and he's keeping, he's aspirating his food, and that's what's causing his pneumonia. Or maybe he's drinking, and because he's drinking, he doesn't have, he cannot cough, and he's getting a pneumonia. So treat that, don't treat the pneumonia. Holistic medicine, yes. looking at the person as a whole. Correct. So I think that is practiced here, where you can truly treat the patient as a whole and enjoy treating the patient as a whole and feel that it's your mission to do it. I think not only the patient gets good care, the doctor also is satisfied. Has a lot of... So when I talk about the peace of the people, you know, of the patients, the other complete aspect of it is the people who deliver the care. And it's not only the doctors. I mean, I would say here, the entire staff of the hospital is just exemplary, right? I mean, Dr. Safaya had a very high position in Delhi and he's now running the hospital. From Dr. Safaya all the way to the Sevadals who keep this hospital immaculately clean. I mean, if you walk down the hall, you can walk completely barefoot. And at the other end, there's nearly a piece of dust on your feet. And that's all from the true devotion of the Sevadal. I mean, the Sevadal come here, they may never get a chance to see Swami, but they come here because of Swami's mission. Many of the perfusionists, for instance, they had no idea when they were doing their MBA and doing their MCOM that Swami one day was just going to pick them out of a line and say, okay, you're going to become a perfusionist. They went, they got trained, and it's amazing how you have super, super intelligent people and dedicated people being perfusionists. So you see that peace and calm in the patients, and you equally see it in the people who work in the hospital, who are associated with the hospital. They can always uh, refer back to Swami. And if there's a real problem with the patient, they can ask Swami for guidance. You know, in the Western world, you, don't, you can't ask, I mean, you can, but you may not get an answer right away from God. Here you can go and ask God, and God will give you an answer. It's, it's like doing a trapeze act, but you have a fantastic net underneath that you know that there's always Swami there to catch you and to help you and to walk with you. And so I think you see that in the physicians and the administrators. So the two levels that you mentioned, one is at the physical level where you don't have billing and the other is this spiritual level. Correct. And I think the spiritual level from the patients and the people who work in the hospital. And that's why overall the hospital, it just seems so pure and clean. It's not only the physical cleanliness, it's also the spiritual cleanliness of everybody's soul. Um, and that's why it makes it so special. And, you know, I am fortunate enough to work here, but I have my feet in both places. I have to take the feet from the outside world and the feet from Prashanti world. And it's very, very different. And, you know, when I'm out there, you know, people say, oh, where are you going to go in India? So I say, I'm going to go to India and I'm going to do some, are you going to operate there? And I say, yes, I'm going to do some charity work. And they think, you know, that's a, that's a noble thing, I'm doing charity work. And I keep telling them, I said, you know, I get a hundred times more out of going there than they ever get from me coming here. Oh. You know, because I might go here and, you know, you know, these operations are Swami's way, I think, of bringing me here to recharge my own batteries. You know, I may come here and work, but when I leave here, I'm so rested and spiritually refreshed. You know, I always say I come here to recharge my batteries. 
and now I come here. I used to come here once a year, but now with Swami's uh, you know, grace, I've been able to come here twice a year. So I think Swami must think that I need to be recharged twice a year, as opposed <laughs> to just being, needing to be recharged once. And so, uh, you know, I could go on a vacation to a beach resort and do nothing. And I would come here and, you know, maybe I help with four or five cases a day. But at the end of that week, I will feel much more refreshed leaving Puttaparthi than leaving and coming back to work from another vacation. Just coming to Darshan, seeing Swami, just kind of cleanses you of all your bad thoughts and He puts good thoughts in your mind. And then you go outside and you slowly lose the charge and then you come back and get recharged again. So I think that's how Swami is. And everybody's journey to Swami is different. You know, I'm uh, probably way behind other people and just starting on my path. That's and I might have thousands of lifetimes to go before I can attain what other people can attain. But at least I'm on the path and Swami is taking me in that path. But when you go to other hospitals uh, in the U.S. or, or in your own hospital, um, do you share about this hospital? We talk about this hospital. Yeah, I mean, uh, even to our administrators, I've, I've shown them pictures of this hospital. I can't, of course, believe that this is a hospital. Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, at the University of Chicago, where I work right now, we're building a new hospital, okay? That hospital is being planned for nine years, okay? They broke ground three years ago. There's still two more years to go. So it takes about four to five years in the U.S. to build a hospital from the ground up. Okay, and so if you tell somebody that somebody's built this hospital in six, to, in six months, you know, of course they think that you're kind of crazy. And it's still hard to believe that you can do something like that in six months. So, so still they don't believe when you share about this hospital? Um, when I say it, I bring a little bit of some credibility, mm -hmm. but they're still incredulous that it can happen. You know, I mean, obviously when people say it, and a lot of people say it, it has happened. But it's just an uh, incredible amount of uh, devotion to Swami for all the people who have made this happen in six months. So unless I think someone comes and sees, it's really hard to believe. Yes. Especially someone from the Western world. And to see that it's done in six months is just, that's even, I mean just seeing the hospital is incredible. Then you say, okay, in six months, then it makes it even more incredible. And then when you say, okay, you did your first four surgeries in the first day after six months, then it takes it to divinity level. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think there's a lot that this hospital as a model... Uh, That's you know, exactly what I was uh, coming to. What do you think uh, is the message that uh, this hospital has for humanity? So I think, you know, this hospital obviously has divine stamp. It has Swami stamp on the hospital. It has this very, very tight influence. And um, Swami has set a very high example, right? Swami is a perfectionist. You know, if uh, there is one comma missing on a text that could be 5,000 pages, Swami will open the page right away and say, you know, is this correct? And so Swami has built this hospital from that perspective. It's an ideal that we should all attain, okay? Um, people say, can this be replicated? Yes, yeah, Swami's replicated it in Bangalore. Yes. Okay, can it be replicated in other places? You know, this is replicated because of Swami's grace and it's a, an ideal example. Can it truly be replicated in other places? I think, you know, with Swami's grace, it can be. But on the other hand, 
people should look at this as an ideal model and try to make something as close to the ideal model as possible. You want to attain the ideal, which is absolutely no charge. Can it be done in reality? Um, you know, to be honest with you, probably not. However, I think people can take a different approach. Even that this is this is working. I mean, this hospital is working. Of course, Swami's grace is there, but uh, ultimately, it is uh, inspired people. It's people who are, and it's happening in a developing country. Apart from resources, you always need dedication and inspiration. Uh, if somebody were to ask, see if this is happening in a developing country, can it not happen? in one of the richest countries of the world. So, I mean, yes, it's happening in a developing country, but it's happening because of Swami. You know, Swami's always said, at one point, uh, there weren't enough uh, doctors, and Swami's always said, I can open my hand, and all the doctors in the world will come here. And if you look at the conferences that Swami's had, he's done that. I mean, you know, leaders in the field come when Swami opens his hand. Well, unfortunately, in Chicago, when an administrator opens his hand, it's not going to happen, <laughs> okay? So I think in a developed country, again, giving free care is a noble idea, but ultimately, there has to be resources in the background that make a hospital operate. I mean, here, you know, but there resources are... resources are not scarce. Um... They are not scarce, but they're also not freely available. Okay, because the, you have your Bill Gates, and you have your, you know, people who are worth billions and billions of dollars. And then, so there's a wide spectrum of wealth. And so that wealth is not freely available from a hospital. Now, there are, there's government-run hospitals. So, like in Chicago, for instance, in Cook County Hospital, even if you have no insurance, okay, you can come to that hospital and you can get care. And you can get the same care that somebody who has insurance. And that's all underwritten by the hospital. On the other hand, they cannot do that to every single person who comes to the hospital. So if somebody has insurance, they can pay, or they pay what they can, and then the government underwrites the rest. But again, that's a government-run hospital system. Um, I don't think a private person can run something like that. And yet, again, the resources are not infinite. So people who can pay, pay, but you never tell somebody who cannot pay that they can't get care. And like uh, I work at a completely private hospital, and uh, you know, if we were giving free care to everybody, very soon they would fire me because they would be you know, losing money. As a department chairman, I have to balance the need to give care to everybody with also the need to run a financially viable enterprise. So what you're saying is this is the ideal setup and this message can be replicated to some extent. Correct. I think the message should be that everybody should get care. Whether they can afford it or not, I think that they is should get is, care. Uh, what the current political, I mean, a debate which has also now become political. Yeah, of course, it was always political. It's healthcare debate which is going on in the U.S. It's all about uh, making healthcare accessible to all. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a very uh, important aspect, you know, universal healthcare, right. and that everybody should get healthcare. Mm. I think... Uh, this hospital epitomizes that, I feel. Well, this, as we had discussed, this is the ideal, yes. right? And so... Here, everybody gets care, whether you are a billionaire or somebody who has much less uh, resources. 
everybody gets the same care and no one pays a bill. And that is Swami's ideal, okay? But um, in reality, with universal healthcare, there are gonna be people who cannot afford it and some people who can afford it. So the people who can afford it need to subsidize the people who cannot afford it. So I think, you know, what we should do as a... People who have should share. I think, correct. So I think universal healthcare means that everyone should get care. Whether you can afford it or not, care should not be denied because you cannot afford the care. So if you happen to be unfortunate and you've lost your job, you get care. If you're a millionaire, you get care. So money should not dictate whether you get care or not. But only in Swami's hospital can money not change hands. In, in that situation, although everybody will get care, a population, a portion of that population will have to subsidize the other portion. And that's what uh, Swami's message is all about, the message of compassion, the message Correct. of pure love. I think one strong message uh, that Swami is giving through all his uh, service projects is, yes, it, it has all happened because of his divine uh, uh, sankalpa, but at the same time, it has happened through people and it has happened through hearts uh, who are transformed. It has happened through people who have filled their hearts with compassion. Correct. And if, uh, if more and more people uh, can transform their hearts in this manner, then don't you think this is possible? I think eventually it's possible and that's what Swami's message is. You know, he's transforming people. You know, each person is going through their own journey. I mean, I've certainly gone through my journey as well. You know, when I uh, started in the early 90s, late 80s, it's very interesting. I was just finishing my training. And at that time, you know, very materialistic, you know, wanting, already planning for two houses and your Mercedes Benz and your BMW and your multiple TVs, etc. I think, you know, in an interesting way, Swami let me have those fantasies. And then when I actually became a practicing physician and I started having money, Swami said, okay, now you come to my fold. Mm -hmm. And I live an extremely, extremely blessed life with Swami's hands. You know, we make, you know, a great amount of money, etc. But it does, that doesn't drive me right. as much as it would have in the past. And I think, uh, you know, Swami has certainly transformed me in that respect. So once uh, there is a critical mass of such people who are similarly inspired, then anything is possible. Yes, I mean, if Swami wants it to happen, it will happen. You know, I, whether it's in his, this uh, avatar or the next avatar, it's happening. You I know, think, I think, I think more and more people... Sorts, people are doing it in their own way. Just as I was mentioning to you before we started, there is this free clinic in Ashland. Yes. One by Dr. One, Dr. Joe Fanouf, uh, who's running it absolutely free. And there are similarly uh, several initiatives. I think one interesting model which is happening in Chennai is uh, what they call a virtual super speciality hospital, wherein one bed uh, is offered free each by 100 hospitals. So that way they have a network of 100 hospitals. And uh, since these hospitals have uh, uh, specialities in various uh, disciplines, so so they have kind of a virtual super speciality hospital. So they locate these poor patients from the villages and then they are treated here absolutely free because they give this one bed free uh, by every hospital. So, so I, I think uh, you make a you know, fantastic point. I think that's when you say, can this be uh, duplicated? 
it cannot be duplicated the way it is, but we can come towards the model. Take the spirit of the message. It's the spirit, it's the example, it's the model. I mean, there are incredible number of places around the world where a model similar to this exists. There are uh, things like uh, Doctors Without Borders, and they go out to different places around the world and do cardiac surgery. You know, we have some, uh, many doctors who, uh, you know, put together through corporate help a hospital and an airplane, for instance, and go to remote areas of Africa mm. and do free care. Even in, uh, you know, in many institutions, you know, there is the underlying uh, theme of, okay, don't deny anybody care. So we're always going to figure out a way how yeah, to give care to somebody. working through all these people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think, again, he sets the example yes. and we follow. I think that virtual hospital in, in Chennai is a magnificent example. I mean, I think in the outside world, in the physical reality, we cannot all give free care. But, but, you know, perhaps everybody says, we're going to give one day a month, or we're going to do two procedures a month. And if, you know, all cardiac surgeons say we're going to do two free procedures a month, then you have your virtual hospital right. all around the world. Right. And I think that is how the message will slowly percolate in. In our small, small ways, we can start bridging the gap between the people who have and people who do not. And I think what I think it's happening. Swami's message is coming through. A lot of that is because of the internet. Now, you know, whatever Swami does and what his message is, is propagated very, very quickly. And that, of course, is all Swami. You know, uh, 20 years ago, you know, if I would uh, write here for permission to come to the hospital, you know, it would take weeks and weeks and weeks to get an answer back. Now, of course, when you write, you get an answer back right away. But, you know, interestingly, the message is the same. Let me just give you an example. Um, 2001, Dr. Venugopal had asked, he was putting a conference together around November time. And so he said, if I could come and uh, give a talk. And I said, okay, I'll come and give a talk, but I want to work in Puttaparthi first. So I would come here, work for a week, and then go give the talk. And that's usually how I was, you know, working and incorporating that with talks. So this was 2001, and I asked, I sent a letter, asked for permission to come and work. And that was like in June. And June came, July went, August went, it was already September, November was coming up. And I had not heard at all. And so I wrote another letter, still never heard anything. I said, oh, maybe they just don't want me to come and work. Because without, of course, permission, you cannot come and work. I just gave up. And of course, 2001 was when 9-11 happened. And then when 9-11 happened, Dr. Venugopal, you know, two weeks later wrote me a letter saying, oh, that November is canceled. So that's why I probably never got invitation to come here because my idea was to come here in November and then go there. So then that November got canceled. Then he wrote a letter back saying, hey, we're going to have this in January. And so again, I wrote a letter uh, and did not get a response, did not get a response. I said, oh, I don't know, maybe it's just not meant to me and I'm not going to work here. But I told Dr. Venugopal, okay, I'll come in January. And then uh, about December 15th, I finally got the letter from uh, Puttaparthi. And they said, okay, you can come and work the first week in March. And I said, why am I going to come in first week in March? Because I'm going to go there for, for January. And uh, how can I come and work the first week in March? So then, uh, about a week later, I get a call from Dr. Venugopal saying, you know, nobody's coming for this meeting, so we're going to cancel it in uh, January. And then I said, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll go to Puttaparthi in March. 
And then you won't believe it, about another week later, I got another invitation to give a talk in Europe. So that was just before I was invited to come here. So, so Swami took care of that trip beautifully. You know, they never gave me permission to come. I missed 9-11. And then I, you know, he, I went to Europe. I came here and I worked and I went back. And all, and you know, it's uh, when the message had to come, the message came when they were ready. Not when you're expecting the message. The message will come when Swami wants the At message to come. At his time. And without his time, you know, nothing works out. You know, it has to be his time. But the thing is, his time period and everything is very different than what we think is our time period. And, you know, we in the physical realm may think, hey, you know, wh why is this not happening now? But whatever Swami does is good for you. Whatever challenges he gives you are good for you. It's all meant towards transforming us into being better people. Uh, okay, um, talking about a slightly different topic about spirituality and healthcare. What are your views? One definition of spirituality is love for God. Love for God, uh, fear of sin and morality in society is what the way once Swami described what spirituality is. Let's take the first thing. Love for God. Have you found any difference in uh, treating patients when they have this facet in their lives? Have you tried to experiment with this kind of philosophy? When I talk to a patient, you know, we have a lot of conversations and, you know, with Swami's grace, obviously, you know, I do a lot of transplants. And so with transplants, you start inheriting patients that uh, are usually not being able to be treated other places. You know, because when you come to the transplant, it's kind of like the end. There's no other options, it's the last recourse. So we end up getting a lot of patients who may say, you know, I've gone to five different hospitals and, and people say there's nothing else that can be done than a transplant. And we may think, yes, but you know, before a transplant, you can still have a valve or bypass or something. So they're very, very sick patients. They're quite debilitated and they've already kind of given up hope when they come. And so I will talk to those patients. And there are many patients who will then say, you know, what is your statistics on this? You know, I've gone to five hospitals. They say they cannot do anything. You know, why do you think you can do it? Are you doing this just for the money? Are you doing this? You know, are you going to kill my father? You know, so a lot of times you end up spending half an hour just telling them that, you know, this is why we think we can do it. And although you have a higher mortality, you know, it's at least a chance. And that's why we're giving them a chance. We're not guaranteeing them success. So, so you have a group of people who are, I call them the naysayers. They're always trying to cite scientific data. You know, what is your operative mortality? And if you say 2.3%, they'll say, well, somebody else is 2.2%. Are they better than you who's 2.3%? Then you have your other group of patients who will say, you know, doc, I have faith in God. And... I'm going to put my faith in your hands and in God's hands. And if God wants me to live, then I will live. And you do your best. And we will all pray that God works through you to take care of, you know, my mother, my father, or myself. And we will pray. And so that's an interesting conversation. So usually what I do is, you know, we will talk to a patient for a while and you can gauge what their interest is in faith. 
and I usually bring it up in a very subtle way, and I, I may say, you know, something simple like, I could operate on you, but ultimately it's in God's hands. And the people who are very, very concrete, the naysayers, as I may, will completely forget that and they'll say, yes, yes, but are you going to get sleep that night? And do you party? Do you drink? Etc. And the people who are more spiritual will pick up on the God and they'll say, ah, okay, you know, do you believe in God? Or they'll say, yes, yes, you know, I think if I put my hands with God, you know, he'll do well. And you won't believe it, but we have 85-year-olds who are very, very sick. And they'll say, listen, I'm going to put my hands in God's and he can work whatever he wants to do, but I have faith that I'll do well. And I have yet to lose a patient who has said those words. Oh. If they say they have faith in God, God will always take care of them. And yet you may have your 45-year-old who's a relatively simple procedure, who is the doubter, who doubts every little single thing, and he'll get every single little complication. So it's amazing how the mind can heal the body and how the patient's mind and their faith in God can heal it. Now there is the spiritual reason why that happens because if they truly believe in God and they say, you know, God, Jesus, Allah, you know, Swami, take care of it, then they do well. And there's also the physiological reason why they do well because if they are truly spiritual, their, uh, you know, their catecholamine levels, their steroid levels, their response to anxiety all come down. And so they can actually respond much better to a trauma of surgery than people who are really so hyper and, uh, you know, who have very high levels of very, of those toxins, so to speak. So you can just, physically the body responds better to medicine? Yes. And to medicine and to the trauma of surgery and everything. So, you know, um, it's, Incredible to me how if somebody is spiritual, they are just naturally calmer and how much better they do, you know, after surgery and after anything else that uh, befalls them. You know, they truly look at their illness as a challenge and that they put that challenge in their God's hands and then, you know, look at the response do to that. Do you have any uh, particular instance to narrate? Any more instance, of course, you narrated one. One of the things that I will narrate to you is in the beginning when we used to come, um, other people used to come from uh, uh, outside as well. So Dr. Venugopal would come with his team and they would do 50 surgeries in one week and Dr. Srivastava used to come. and So a lot of these people would come, operate and leave. And so uh, when I came at that time, the first thing everybody would ask is, well, how many procedures are you doing? How many are you going to do? And so you felt in your mind that you had to compete. You had to be, you know, you had a little bit of jealousy that all these people were doing so much, everybody's giving them credit, so you had to do more. So in, in that realm, we were uh, operating. And uh, that day, particularly that day, you know, Swami was supposed to give a discourse. And that discourse was supposed to occur at like five o'clock, six o'clock. And by about 2.30 or 3, everybody said, okay, we won't, do, we won't want to do any more surgery because we won't have enough time, we should all go to uh, Swami's discourse. And uh, I wanted to do the cases because mm. I wanted to do as many cases as possible at that time. And so, uh, you know, I, with my, uh, I just said, listen, it's a very simple case. It's two-vessel bypass surgery. And I had brought my assistant as well. And I said, listen, 
just get out of the way, watch us do it in an hour and a half, and everybody will be on time for darshan as well. So, you know, obviously my ego talking, you know, kind of a little bit of arrogance, etc. So you won't believe it, we started the case, and every single thing that could possibly go wrong went <laughs> wrong with that case. You know, ultimately the patient did fine, that's Swami's grace. But uh, it ended up becoming like a six-hour case. We didn't get out of here till midnight. And uh, so it was just a very, very long day. And so next day in Darshan, Swami came up to me and he smiled and he said, Oh, that was not a short case. What happened? <laughs> and right there was my first incident of Swami slapping down the ego. Because mm. I came to realize that you know, it's that little bit of arrogance. It's that ego that's saying, hey, I'm better than everybody else. Just watch me operate, right? Because that's not true. Because Swami is the doer. And um, I needed to understand the circumstances. I needed to understand other people's feelings. And I needed to understand that, hey, I'm not doing it. That Swami's going to do it. And if that wasn't the time to do it, don't force it. And so I've become much more... I understand circumstances more. And if someone says, hey, everybody in the team wants to leave, then I'm not going to push the issue. I mean, obviously, if it really means importance for patient care, I will. Mm -hmm. But in a circumstance like this, you know, give up, mm -hmm. surrender to, to the God, mm -hmm. surrender to divinity, mm -hmm. because you're not doing it. He's doing it. And if it was meant to be, he would do it. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't meant to be, and you're supposed to have attended that uh, discourse, then let that happen as well. Mm -hmm. And I think I still remember that incident. And it's uh, you know, one of the many incidences that have kind of transformed me mm -hmm. into realizing that um, don't be the hothead, don't be the arrogant, egotistical cardiac surgeon. Mm -hmm. you know, there are many other factors and being compassionate, not only to the patient, but to the rest of the team, mm -hmm. will go a long way further mm -hmm. than trying to do that one extra case. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one case. I'll uh, narrate you another case that happened um, at, in Philadelphia. So there was a Swami devotee, and uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's a really long story about how he actually came to see me, but the day of the surgery, you know, we had talked, and uh, he said he wanted me to put vibhuti on him before we operated, and I did that. And he said, you know, his biggest fear was that uh, he would wake up with a breathing tube in. So a breathing tube is what we have to do to do the cardiac surgery. And uh, when they wake up, you kind of just take it out because they're not strong enough to breathe on their own. So there's about four or five hours where they slowly wake up. And then afterward, we take the tube out. So for that four or five hours, it's quite uncomfortable. People are quite paranoid about it. So he told me that the only thing he prayed to Swami was that he didn't want to have that tube in for too long. Mm. So he told me this, and we operated on him, of course, with Swami's grace. The actual procedure went fantastically well. And then um, I uh, waited with him uh, till about 10 o'clock in the evening time because I thought if he was awake enough, we could take the tube out because, you know, he wanted that, uh, it was one of his wishes. It was 10 o'clock, it was late, and uh, he still wasn't awake, quite awake. And so I told the nurse, I said, hey, just keep the tube until tomorrow morning and we'll take it out because our policy was never to take the tube out after 10 o'clock because, you know, there, there weren't too many people. If the tube comes out and the people have to go back in, we didn't have very uh, senior people in the hospital at that time. So our usual policy is, you know, if it's not out by 10, take it out at 6 o'clock in the morning. 
I go home, I come back, the next day morning I come in and the poor guy has, you know, he's tied down to his bed, his breathing tube is out and uh, they're about to give him some antipsychotic medication, it's called Haldol. And I looked at him and I said, hey, what happened to him? You know, he was doing fine, no one called me, what's going on? So the nurse said, you know, that she was in his room and she left and she came back at about, two, about 3 o'clock in the morning and his tube was out. And she asked him, hey, what happened? And he says, you know, but doc, and unfortunately, he's, he's delusional, he's hallucinating. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, he keeps telling me that a person in the orange room came and took the tube out. Oh. And uh, she said, well, so obviously I had to give him antipsychotic medications because he's just <laughs> having a delusion. Oh my God. And so I went and talked to him and he says, you know, hey, Dr. Jivananda, you won't believe it, but Swami came. And you know, I had told you that I had prayed to Swami that I didn't want the tube for too long. Swami came, took the tube out, but they won't believe me. <laughs> <laughs> so I talked to him and he was perfectly lucid, except he was mm. talking about Swami and of course none of the other nurses Understood. knew about Swami. Mm. So he took his restraints out, he didn't need any haldol, he just needed somebody to believe in Swami for him. Mm. So uh, you know, Swami is there everywhere, he's not only here, he takes care of patients in every hospital. And here we know that Swami is taking care of him. In other hospitals, most people don't believe. Because if you know somebody had narrated the same story here in Buddhapati, everyone would have said, ah, oh, it's a Swami miracle. Mm. There, they're about to give him antipsychotic medication. <laughs> so that's the difference between you know Philadelphia and Buddhapati. Mm. And uh, so, I'll give you one more story. You know, uh, This was actually a nurse that was in Philadelphia. And she came to my house one day and uh, you know we just have, uh, we used to have uh, dinners for the whole team, this was just for Christmas. And of course we had Swami's picture also all over the house, so after uh, dinner, you know, she came to me and she said, hey Val, who is that guy on the wall? So I said, you know, we consider him our spiritual guru. And she said, you know what, I've had these really, really weird dreams for the last two nights. And I said, you know, what are these dreams? And she says that she would be going down the street and uh, where our hospital was at that time, there was a very broad street, it was called Broad Street actually, mm -hmm. and people would go quite fast down Broad Street. And she said that she was going down Broad Street, she would see a, certain, a particular restaurant, she would see a, a gas station, and then all of a sudden, this person, Swami, would come right in front of her and she would have to slam on her brakes. And she said, I don't know, but this dream has been waking me up two nights in a row. What do you think about the dream? And uh, so I told her, I said, well, I don't know about the dream, but you know, when you're going down Broad Street and you see these, the restaurant and the gas station, just be very careful and take your foot off the accelerator and maybe put your foot on the brake. <laughs> and so two days later, she narrates to me that she was going down Broad Street and she had a feeling that it was like this very similar to the dream scenario. So she saw the restaurant, she saw the gas station, and she just reflexively put her foot on the brake. And as she, put her, uh, as she put her foot on the brake, a small child ran right in front of her car with a, because it was chasing a ball. Mm -hmm. And so by putting her foot on the brake, you know, the, uh, the child was saved and she didn't have to go anything. So mm -hmm. the swan is everywhere. He comes in people's dreams, he comes in many, many forms, mm. he comes as a voice, you know, it's just amazing, you know, 
when we say Swami is omnipotent and omnipresent, we don't realize how omnipotent and omnipresent He is. Yes. He's not only here, He's everywhere. Mm. Even as we were talking, we just heard that Swami passed by this road, so <laughs> He's there, invisibly and visibly. So He's listening time. to this interview. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> yes. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think you can go on, sir, uh, with these instances of us, how you felt His invisible hand of Bhagwan. Um, thank you very much uh, for sparing your valuable time. It was really enlightening and refreshing listening to you. Uh, your last word, what would you like to say to all our Radio Side listeners? I think, uh, you know, Sanu is transforming me and I think he's transforming everybody else. And even in an interview like this, mm -hmm. um, so do listeners really kindles all the memories that Swami's had and I think one of the things that um, I'd like to say is, you know, many years ago we ha I had these experiences, but never really appreciated it that time. And I'm appreciating them now. Mm. But we should always live in the present. And that's what always Swami says. He says, right. the past is past and the future, you don't know. And live the present. Mm. And I would say that I never lived the present. Mm. Because, you know, instances like this would occur and we would just not even think about it, mm. but now I'm thinking about it. Mm. Mm. And so instead of living the past, we should all live the present. Present. And make best use of the present. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much for your time. And we hope uh, we will have uh, many more chances of such conversations with you because I know what you have shared today is only a drop. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was a conversation with Dr. Waluvan Jivanandam, a world-famous cardiac surgeon, professor and chief section of cardiothoracic surgery, University of Chicago. Dr. Jivanandam, who is an expert in heart transplant surgery, mentioned how even though he has transplanted hundreds of hearts, it was Bhagwan Baba who has transformed his heart. After coming into Saifold, his life, attitude, beliefs and outlook in life has changed from me and for myself to for others and the needy. Dr. Jivanandam, who has been honored with many prestigious awards including America's top doctor for cardiac surgery, America's top surgeon and so on, continues to visit Puttaparthi twice a year to serve in Baba's Super Speciality Hospital. And as you heard in this program, serving in Baba's hospital every year is the best way Dr. Jivanandam feels he can spend his vacations. In conversation with Dr. Valluvan Jivanandam, in this program was Radio Sai's Bishu Prashti. This was yet another episode of our continuing series, Tryst with Divinity, wherein we bring you stories of people who have been touched by the love of Bhagwan Baba. This conversation was recorded in the Super Speciality Hospital in Prashantinilayam when Dr. Jeevananda was here to participate in an international cardiac conference held in October 2010. Please do share your feedback to this episode of Trist with Divinity by writing to listener at radiosci.org. Thank you and Sairam from Prashantinilayam.